Welcome to In the Public Interest, a podcast from Wilmer Hale. I'm Brendan McGuire. And I'm John Walsh. Brendan and I are partners at Wilmer Hale, an international law firm that works at the intersection of government, technology, and business. In this episode, John is joined by our Wilmer Hale colleagues, Jason Chipman and Matt Ferraro, along with prominent author, advisor, and speaker, Nina Schick. They'll be discussing deepfakes and digital disinformation. From a certain perspective, deepfakes are not a new phenomenon. Orson Welles' famous or infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast in 1938 was in its own way a deepfake. However, what once belonged largely to the world of science fiction has now become a part of our everyday lives. And with the technological advances of the digital era, the availability and dissemination of false information is only growing. This is a fascinating discussion on a very important topic, and we hope you will enjoy it. And with that, I'll turn it over to John and his guests. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of In the Public Interest. Today, we're diving into the world of digital fakes and manipulated media with a discussion of so-called deep fakes and digital disinformation. The idea of deep fakes became even more timely after the recent release of incredibly realistic deep fake videos of actor Tom Cruise that went viral on TikTok. You should check it out. For today's discussion, I'm joined by Nina Schick, an author, advisor, and speaker who has become one of the world's experts on how technology and artificial intelligence are reshaping our society. Nina has advised leaders in many countries, including President Joe Biden, and is the author of the critically acclaimed 2020 book, Deepfakes, The Coming Infocalypse. I'm also joined by Matt Ferraro, a counsel at Wilmer Hale. Matt's a prolific writer on deepfakes and disinformation. Before joining Wilmer Hale, Matt worked as an intelligence officer with the U.S. government, and he brings to his practice his expertise in intelligence issues and national security. Wilmer Hale partner Jason Chipman will be moderating the discussion. His practice focuses on how the rapidly evolving world of technology interacts with the law and the opportunities and challenges that interaction presents. Nina, Jason, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Jason, I'm handing it over to you. Hi, Nina and Matt. It's fantastic to have you here. It's really exciting. I can't think of two better people to talk to about deep fakes. So welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. A real pleasure. Nina, I'd like to start with the basics, if we can. What is a deep fake? Where does that term come from? Well, I think it's a really good starting point because this entire field is so new that the taxonomy really hasn't been decided. But how I define it in my book is a piece of media that is either manipulated or entirely generated by artificial intelligence. So that could be an image, it can be a audio clip, it can be text, and it can be video. And I think the key point to understand here is this ability of artificial intelligence to actually create fake media or manipulate media, something that's only been in the realm of the possible for about the last five years. There's a negative connotation to deep fake because this is the implication of a piece of synthetic media that's somehow used in a malicious context. However, it's worth saying right from the outset that synthetic media will not all be used for bad purposes. So the way I define a deep fake is a piece of media generated or created by AI that's used for the purposes of mis- or disinformation. So are we seeing deep fakes out in the world today? Could you share some examples of what a real deep fake looks like? 
Yeah, we are. And again, the name itself, deep fake, comes from the first and most malicious and prevalent use of this kind of fake media. And it comes in the form of non-consensual pornography. The name itself was a play on the words of deep learning and fake, and it emerged on Reddit at the end of 2017, where essentially an anonymous user, we still don't know who he is, but we know he was someone who was interested in machine learning, basically managed to figure out how to use some of the kind of advances that were emerging from the cutting edge of the AI research community to make these fake pornographic films which featured actresses. Now, fake pornography is not a new phenomenon. It's definitely been around for as long as Photoshop has been around, but there was something very different about these creations that he was making on Reddit because they weren't simply an actress with their face photoshopped onto a porn star's body. These were actual films where AI was used to superimpose the face of an actress onto the body of a porn star. Needless to say, as so often with the internet, pornography is pioneering. And as soon as this anonymous user kind of had made these initial creations, the Reddit thread went wild. It was eventually shut down. But since then, remember, this is only at the end of 2017, an entire deepfake pornographic ecosystem has emerged online. And the very alarming thing about it is that all women are victims. It is undeniably a gendered phenomenon, but it's not only celebrities who are in the firing line. Increasingly, we're starting to see how AI is being weaponized against not only normal women, but even minors in the creation of deepfake pornography. And again, I think the point to make here is that this might seem like a tawdry woman's issue, but to me, this is only the harbinger of a much deeper societal problem because once you can make AI-generated fake media, the first thing people have done is make fake pornography, but obviously it's going to be used in other contexts as well. And we're really starting to see that emerging now. Wow, that's really extraordinary. I think, Matt, I'm curious about how accessible the tools are to do what Nina's describing. Is this something that a savvy computer user can create, or does it take a lot more skill than that? So the short answer is that it's becoming increasingly accessible. There are apps available. Zhao is a very popular Chinese app that does face swapping. There are websites, Deepfakes Web, which similarly does face swapping, where you take your face and basically put it on someone else's body. The best deepfakes are still created by researchers. The most recent really good example was created by MIT to demonstrate how easy it is, in fact, for them to create a very believable deepfake. And what they did is they took a speech by Richard Nixon and they hired a voice actor. And using AI, they altered the speech and altered his voice to make it sound like Richard Nixon was announcing the failure of the Apollo moon landing. For those who don't remember, the Apollo 11 moon landing succeeded. But this was Nixon giving a speech in which he announced that it had failed. And it's very believable. You can go online. It's called In Case of a Moon Disaster. You can Google it on YouTube. And so the very best are still done by researchers. But increasingly, you're able to create fairly good fakery just online using widely available technology. Are there counter deepfake tools? Can a discerning user tell what's a deepfake and what's real? Can a sophisticated person who understands the technology make that distinction? Or is the point that you can't tell, that nobody can tell if a deep fake's been made well? I mean, I think that there are sort of tells, right? You can look often, the ears look kind of funny. Sometimes the corners of the mouth don't move properly in a video because that's the part that's been copied over, as it were, by the computer system. And there are technological ways of 
dealing with deep fakes, basically two technological methods. One is to detect after the fact. And there has been a lot of advances in that regard. Microsoft recently came out and I think it was October 2020 with a tool that would give basically a confidence score on imagery on whether or not it was false. So that's one is basically to detect it afterwards. And then the other is uh, this is emerging field of what's called provenance media. And that is basically flipping the equation on its head where you say, let's not try to find what's fake, what's, let's verify what's true. And in that, the idea is that you take a piece of media and it's mostly photographs, but it can apply to any media and you more or less tag it with metadata and such that if it's ever manipulated, the metadata then goes up to distributed ledger to blockchain technology. And then if you ever alter that media, there's going to be breadcrumbs back to the original. And so the hope is, again, you'll sort of be able to look in the same way that you look at a browser today and you see like a lock next to the URL and know that that has secure socket layers, a secure website. You'll be able to look at an image and see a similar kind of tell that is in fact a verified image. And perhaps you can click on it if you're on a computer and gives you sort of its history. And just to add to that, when it comes to some of the methods that have been used to detect deep fakes, so digital forensics, people looking at what doesn't look right, as Matt already suggested, you know, that's going to become irrelevant soon because the technology is accelerating so quickly that to the naked human eye, we're not going to be able to tell when something's been manipulated by AI. And even if we could, it wouldn't be a sensible way to identify which videos were synthetic because they are going to become ubiquitous as these tools become accessible, not only to those who have a lot of resources, but basically to everyone through easy applications to use like smartphones. On the kind of detection side, therefore, you have to think about how do we use AI to detect these kind of deep fakes, because the human is not going to be able to do it. And I think, interestingly, the jury's still out on whether or not we reach a point where the generation technology, so the, the actual deep fakes, become so sophisticated that any detector is unable to detect that this is actually a deep fake. And the kind of researchers who I've spoken to about it are unsure whether or not we'll ever reach that point. What we have currently available, I know Matt just mentioned, for example, the Microsoft deepfake detection tool. The problem with that is that they are often scoring highly in terms of how many deepfakes they can detect, but they are only as good as the training data that they're fed on. And when you're potentially looking at multiple different types of deepfakes created by various different machine learning models in the wild, it's going to be very difficult, I would say impossible, to actually create a detection tool that is a one-size-fits-all one. So I think ultimately this is always going to be an adversarial game of cat and mouse, just like all cybersecurity. Just as your detection capabilities get better, so will the ability to kind of con those detectors. When it comes to media provenance, one last point on that, very exciting work being done in the industry. For example, Adobe is leading an initiative with Qualcomm and Trupic, and they've actually just launched their first prototype where they embed provenance technology into the hardware of a phone. People said it wouldn't be possible. They basically rolled it out within 12 months. I think the key point there is how do you get industry-wide acceptance of this as a new media standard? So it's very interesting to see how Adobe is leading the work there along with other really interesting partners. Nina, you've described deep fakes in your writings as a societal problem. I think you just mentioned that a moment ago. Can you talk about that for a moment? Is this, in your mind, a political problem, an economic problem? Is it a 
business problem, maybe all of the above. How do you see the issues that deep fakes are going to force us to confront? I think it's an all-encompassing problem covering everything from economics to society to politics. And this is really where Matt and I, when we first started discussing this issue, when I was researching my book, we completely saw eye to eye on this because we both come from a geopolitical military intelligence type of background. I think the context in which deepfakes are developing is that for the past 30 years, the technological progress of the exponential age, one of the side effects of that is that we've created this new information ecosystem, one that when it was at its inception was kind of hailed as an unmitigated good for humanity. And what's become abundantly clear now, especially in the last decade of my work in geopolitics, is that actually we are facing a monumental crisis of mis and disinformation that has been accelerated by this new information ecosystem. We see it changing politics, not only on the international level, but also on the national level, on the domestic level, but also beginning to affect all businesses and all private individuals in their lives in a way which wasn't possible before. So the context in which this technology is evolving is one of a very dangerous information ecosystem where we already have a plethora of mis and disinformation. And now you're saying this tool, which is going to allow anybody to create the most sophisticated visual disinformation known to mankind for basically free within a matter of years, and then be able to release that into this information ecosystem to the world, I think when you start to consider it in these terms, the implications of what deepfakes could do in this already very rapidly evolving information ecosystem are stark and vast. And as I mentioned right at the top, all-encompassing. It is uh, not only a political issue, it is not only an economic issue, it's a society-wide issue that we have to understand is a new paradigm, really. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I would say, if there's any circumstance in which you rely upon any media to ascertain truth, that's an area in which deepfakes pose an evolving threat. Because I think a lot of what Nina said, I you know, completely agree with, because we live in an age of increasing disinformation, loss of trust in institutions, sort of the democratization of voices, which leads, I think, increasingly to this fact that if every voice is as equal as every other, increasingly people will believe whatever it is their own biases compel them to believe. And then you add to that the accelerant of which is extraordinarily believable media, and you're in for a real mess. I mean, just to give you one example from the political context, I mean, you could think of the January 6th insurrection here in Washington. And what you think what happened there, those were essentially victims of disinformation, and they were driven to delusion by falsity that is as basic as could be, right? Just written and spoken lies about the election, about, you know, phantom fraud, about things that the vice president could or couldn't do. Now, imagine adding to that witch's brew, just very believable video of, say, election worker wearing a Biden t-shirt shredding Trump ballots or, you know, quote unquote, undercover video of Nancy Pelosi and AOC plotting to steal the election, I think the delusion would have been much more broadly shared and much harder to shake. And we're in a state where millions of people believe that stuff anyway. We're lawyers, Jason, and we think about, and I know Nina does too, the private sector. You know, there are so many areas in which this poses private sector risks. There's company reputational risk. 
imagine a CEO being caught on an undercover video, a false video, saying horrendous things, maybe using racial epithets, or a false video promoting a merger that isn't going to happen, and that can goose the stock price. So there's a level of market manipulation at work. There's terrible fraud. I mean, there's been one example reported in the Wall Street Journal of someone using deepfake audio, which is very similar kind of technology, just not video, to um, conduct a fraud scheme where they telephoned the CEO of a company, impersonated the CEO of the parent company, and tricked the CEO into wiring a quarter million dollars to a false recipient. And then it turned out, of course, that it wasn't the parent company CEO he was on the phone with. It was just somebody using an AI-enabled uh, technology. And that's the kind of thing that I think is just an ambient business risk for increasing companies. Anytime that you would need to rely on the truth, the deep fakes can pose a real danger. I would love to just add one more point to that. I absolutely agree with everything Matt has said. And I think perhaps I should have clarified at the top of the podcast that one of the things that is so astounding about deep fakes and synthetic media is the ability of AI to replicate humans. So, you know, we've kind of tried it for ages. Even if you look at the best CGI and computer effects that are available now, it doesn't quite work. A good example, for instance, Martin Scorsese's film, The Irishman, where he has this epic storyline spanning seven decades where he kind of de-ages his protagonist. And in order to film that, it took him five years. He had the best kind of special effects artists in Hollywood. He had multi-million dollar budget. He filmed with a three-rig camera. And if you saw the movie when it came out in 2019, the kind of de-aging effect was good, but you know, perhaps not really convincing as a consumer. Fast forward to 2020, and a single YouTuber with a budget of zero basically used some open source AI software, so i.e. deepfake technology, to have a crack at de-aging those protagonists. And you can see the videos on YouTube and Arguably, his end result, it took him a week to do, is far better than anything Scorsese had managed to do from 2015 to 2019. So the ability of AI to visually replicate humans is not only superior to anything we've seen before, but another very important point is that it can also be trained to hijack your biometrics, right? The way this technology works is that it is given training data and then it can learn to either look like you or sound like you. And because the technology is accelerating at such a rapid rate, the amount of training data that is needed is becoming less and less. So for instance, if you wanted to create a deep fake, when I first started looking at this at the end of 2017 to early 2018, and let's say I wanted to synthesize Donald Trump, we would have needed hours and hours of video footage of Trump's, hours and hours of his voice audio to kind of get the AI to learn what he sounds like in order to be able to recreate him as a deep fake. Now, barely three years later, and already there are companies out there that say they can synthesize voice with a clip of 10 seconds. And even if that's a bold claim, I think the direction of travel is clear. Anybody who has any kind of digital footprint, don't even have to be a politician or a public figure. If you have an Instagram profile, if you have a Facebook profile, if there is any digital footprint of you whatsoever on the internet, then you could potentially become the target of a deep fake. And I think that is the thing that is so alarming about it. You know, and, and hearing Nina talk about it, it makes me think of one uh, thing I should add, which is that we speak a lot about audio and video and imagery, but there's also text, just written text. 
and the ability to create at scale text that sounds like it was written by humans can also pose major dangers. One area where this has already been somewhat documented is in administrative notice and comment procedures here in the U.S. If you want to enact an administrative regulation, it's open to public notice and comment. And there's been one example already of that being hijacked by false text, that is to say a computer-generated text. And certainly sounds like humans, and that can manipulate the input into government functioning. And then also, of course, online. I mean, think of how much effort is spent by businesses, by politicians for that matter, moderating, controlling, shaping online discussion. And if you can create at scale millions of tweets that sound like they were written by millions of individual users, but only use a deepfake network, you can radically alter business perceptions, corporate perceptions, perceptions of politicians. And again, it just sort of creates this morass in which truth and falsehood are ever so much intertwined. That's such an important point. We don't often talk about synthetic text generation. I think OpenAI actually released their synthetic text generating model, GPT-3, it's called, last summer. It's arguably the most powerful AI that does exist. And there's been a very interesting study by the Middlesbrough Institute into terrorism as to how this model is basically, they tested it because OpenAI allowed researchers to do certain prompts and testing on this machine learning system. And they found that it could actually be a very powerful tool of radicalization because essentially, if you think about the new model of how you radicalize individuals on the internet, it's through one-on-one speaking on them, being down on message boards. And now imagine you can do that at scale with AI, I think the implications are really potentially severe. What you're describing sounds to me like the commoditization of what used to be the realm of governments or organizations with enormous resources that would be required to create something like what you're describing. But you're talking about a world where anyone can create effectively a a realistic looking video that seems real and posted out into the information ecosystem. What, What should we do about that? What should governments do about it? Nina, is this something that requires new laws? Is it something that requires private public partnerships? How do we think about even coming to grips with the problem you're describing? I think it requires all of that. And I think the conceptual starting point, this is really why I wrote my book, and I kind of tried to put a conceptual framework around this information ecosystem itself. I called it the infocalypse, and I described it as this increasingly dangerous and untrustworthy ecosystem wherein everything exists. You have to focus on fixing the integrity of the information ecosystem itself. Now, that's a lot easier said than done. And I think the starting point is conceptualizing it, And then beginning to see that this problem is so vast that there is no one single entity or part of society that can tackle it alone, right? So industry, the private sector is going to have to work with government. The tech companies are going to have to be involved. You really have to take a networked approach. But in terms of your question as to government and legislation and regulation, Absolutely. There is a huge role to play. From my own experience, however, of working with government and working with political leaders, I think sometimes these changes have happened so quickly that some policymakers are not equipped to kind of handle the realities of this new information ecosystem. For instance, I used to advise the former Secretary General of NATO 
uh, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. And of course, when you were talking about war, he was more talking about, you know, artillery, tanks at the border, where are the green men? And I was talking about deep fakes. So I think there's like a generational divide to be bridged there. That's not to say that all policymakers are created equal and some really do get it. But the bottom line here is, again, that this is not something that government can take the lead on alone. It needs cross-society collaboration and it also needs really forward-thinking policy on things like digital education. You know, how are we going to change schooling so that from a young age, people know that we live in this kind of untrustworthy information ecosystem and can kind of begin to understand how they need to protect themselves in it as well. Matt, what's happening in the U.S. at the federal and state level on this topic? There's been a surprising amount of action when it comes to legislating on synthetic media deep fakes. And I think some of it, you could say, is successful and some of it is unsuccessful. But I'd like to say that they're trying. Baseline, five states. California, New York, Maryland, Texas, Virginia have barred some kinds of deepfakes, the use of deepfakes in some manner or another. Those are primarily in either deepfakes that influence voters or are of politicians within certain days of an election. And primarily, that's a basket one, basket two is uh, deepfake porn, as Nina was talking about, which is such an epidemic. It varies. Most bills are civil. They allow for civil remedies, although a few are criminal. So far as I know, there have been no successful prosecutions yet. But again, it's, they've only been enacted in the past couple of months, really, in some cases a year. At the federal level, there have been no laws that have been changed in terms of like the criminal code. But there have been, interestingly, they've adopted, I guess it's probably now four bills on deepfakes, depending a little bit on how you count, in the past 14 months. The first required the director of national intelligence to write a report on how foreign states were using deepfakes to affect U.S. national security. The sort of most recent major bill was passed and signed by the president in December of 2020, and that would require the Department of Homeland Security to write a yearly report for five years assessing the dangers of deepfakes across the range of harms, so from national security to frauds to their effect on vulnerable groups and civil rights. It also would require the DOD to write intelligence assessments of the threat posed by foreign governments creating deepfakes to target the military. So there's been a lot of bill making. And I should say for those out there in podcast land who aren't totally familiar with how this all works, the sort of writing of reports by government can lay a predicate for further legislating whether it's creating a criminal laws or, or perhaps more administrative action. So I do think that there's actually a lot of work on it. And I think part of it, honestly, is Nina's work raising the consciousness of this issue and others who are just very concerned about what this might mean for the future. But it's definitely evolving very quickly. And I'm not sure, to be honest, that all problems have solutions. Matt and Nina, we've, we've been a bit doom and gloom here. We've talked a lot about the dangers of deepfakes. Is there anything positive about deepfake technology? Is there a way to cultivate a use of this technology in a manner that's good for society? How should we think about that? 
Absolutely. Like all powerful technologies of the exponential age, this is another one that is simply an amplifier of human intention. Now, as it happens with my background in geopolitics and information warfare, I've been very concerned about what deepfakes can mean with regards to a corroding information ecosystem. But if you look at how synthetic media, and I use the term synthetic media to talk about the positive applications of deepfakes, is going to change the world. I mean, it's going to be one of the most transformational moments in the history of human communication, right? You're looking at a future where increasingly all of the media that we interact with is going to be generated and synthesized by artificial intelligence. It's going to mean that content creation is going to open up and be democratized for almost anyone. So a lot of people are saying, who work on the kind of generation side of synthetic media right now, that this is a real boon for creatives. If somebody who's on YouTube can create video footage that is just as compelling with fidelity effects that are just as high as something that is only exclusively accessible right now to a Hollywood studio, what does that mean for the future of industries like entertainment, sports, art, corporate communications. There's actually a synthetic media generation startup who I know very well based in London. They're called Synthesia. And their entire vision is to change the future of corporate communications. They basically want to be able to make it just as easy to make a video as typing an email. And they already work right now with Fortune 500 companies where essentially CEOs who want to communicate in several different regions across the world in several different languages all that can be generated with a few clicks of a button on their back end, right? So for them, this is a tremendous boon. Another potential really amazing use case, as I said, AI is so fantastically good at recreating your biometrics. So I know of another group of researchers, for instance, who's already looking into how they can use synthetic voice to be able to give those who've lost the ability to speak, for instance, through a neurodegenerative disease, through a stroke, how can they give them a synthetic voice to speak with again? So I think the most important thing to understand here, again, is this point that I made at the very beginning, that this technology is not all bad. It's going to be an amplifier for human intention. It's extremely powerful. And just as it will be used for many malicious purposes, it will be used for good. So this makes the question of how do we regulate this? What do we do about this as a society? Increasingly difficult because it's not going to be a case where you can just say, oh, well, all synthetic media is bad and all deepfakes are bad, so we can ban it. There's going to be a lot of gray areas and it's a paradigm change. I agree that there are potential positive use cases for deepfakes, particularly in addressing disabilities and restoring voice to those who have lost it to disease, as Nina says. But I do think the expansive use of deepfakes, even for good purposes, poses concerns that society should ponder further. Let me make two quick points. First, the increased use of deepfakes will invite universal skepticism of all media. This has been called by some disbelief by default, and it can give power to the powerful to deny the veracity of real media if it shows them doing or saying things they don't like. In that world, a leader can just claim that any video is merely a deepfake, and the public will be more and more primed to believe them. Second, I think the truth has intrinsic value. The broad use of deepfakes can create an atmosphere of falsity that undermines this abstract good. And by that, I mean an empirical, verifiable world whose essential reality is shared by all. 
going forward, I think we as a society have to grapple with what it means to live in a world where we all inhabit our own realities with tailor-made media to buttress our beliefs, no matter the actual truth. It's not a today problem, but it's the kind of thing we need to think about going forward. Matt and Nina, I feel like we're at the tip of the iceberg on this extraordinary topic. Thank you very much, Nina. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining us today to talk about this exciting topic. We really appreciate it. A real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Jason and Nina. This was so much fun. I agree. That was a lot of fun. It's a great topic, although candidly a little disturbing. A big thanks to all three of you for joining us on this episode of In the Public Interest and for letting me listen in on what was really a fascinating discussion. It was a particular privilege to have Nina join us and share her expertise and insights on this subject. We're all going to be hearing a lot more about deepfakes and digital misinformation as that technology continues to evolve and as we all, including our governments, figure out how to deal with it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend and also to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time on In the Public Interest.